Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, as we read verses 25 through 34. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I think I speak for many, probably even most, maybe all in this room when I say that we are an anxious people. Would you remind us today of the immense need for us to trust you, not simply for the sake of our own hearts and our own minds, but because your very glory is at stake. Make us a people who trust you and who know truly how to rest in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I thought about talking about anxiety, the thing that sort of stopped me before I started was I was going to begin talking about anxiety and simply assume that we mean the same thing when we talk about anxiety. And uh, it was very providential as I was, was working on this, and I was thinking through the best way to sort of break down what anxiety is, what we're talking about, especially biblically when we talk about anxiety. Uh, I don't remember if someone sent me the article or if, if it went up uh, at the Gospel Coalition right as I was working on this, but Joe Carter wrote an excellent sort of breakdown of what we mean when we talk about anxiety, and he broke it down into four different categories, which I'm going to introduce here uh, in a moment, but one of the things that, that I notice about Jesus here is that Jesus is speaking to a persistent temptation that is not new. When Jesus is speaking to us about anxiety, he's not thinking, you know, I know you first century Christians, you're fine, everybody here's good, nobody's anxious right now, but in about 2,000 years, people are just going to be crazy off the charts anxious. So I'm going to talk to you guys about something you don't know about. And then in 2,000 years, this will all be very applicable. Uh, That's not how Jesus taught, right? He taught people where they were at the time. And 
even just reading it this morning, I felt my own heart ministered to. Everything else that I say afterwards is just going to dilute probably what you got in a condensed dose from Jesus. Jesus has already given us just what we need there. And yet, uh, hopefully, we still have some fruitful things that we can find here in the text. Um, But the thing that strikes me is that anxiety is not a new problem. It is an old problem. It's an ancient problem. Uh, If it's 2,000 years old, then it's 4,000 years old, right? Uh, It's been around for a very long time. So I mentioned the Joe Carter article. Joe Carter does a good job of talking about four different types of anxiety, and I really think that's helpful. It's going to set a little bit of um, the stage for what we're going to say this morning. So here, here's how he breaks it down, and I will just say a little bit about each of these as we go through. But the first kind of anxiety is, is, God, is a God-given emotional response for our benefit. Um, think of this as fear. Right? Fear is when we are afraid of a perceived immediate threat. For example, uh, I don't know if you've seen these. I've seen a few YouTube videos of people who went on walks, and while they were on the walk, lo and behold, a mountain lion jumps out, and they decide their first thought is, I've got to get this on video. <laughs> and then they think, oh no, it's actually chasing me. Um, and they become afraid. At least I, I think they become afraid. Um, Being chased by a cougar instills fear. Uh, And if you feel anxious when you are being chased by a mountain lion, I want you to know that is not the kind of anxiety that Jesus is talking about today. You should be anxious if a mountain lion is chasing you, right? Um, It's a God-given gift that suddenly our heart starts pumping as fast as it does, and suddenly we find that we are able to run much faster than we ever could before. That's a blessing. All right, that's not the kind of anxiety Jesus is talking about today. Uh, there's a second kind of anxiety. It, it's a disordered physiological response that's not sinful. I think the best way to describe this would be something like clinical anxiety, where people have persistent anxious thoughts most of the time. Uh, people have trouble sleeping. They have other symptoms. They might have insomnia. Um, In my opinion, this is not the kind of anxiety Jesus is talking about either because you're talking about something physiological. You're not talking necessarily about something that is directly spiritual. Now, I do think there are are ways in which the gospel speaks peace to someone who is experiencing this. Uh, One of the best examples of that is a recent book by Pierce Hibbs. It's a book called Struck Down But Not Destroyed. And if you would like to read a book that takes this condition, the physiological side of this, seriously, uh, he wrote this book from his own experience. He, he wrote it after having sort of a mental breakdown of his own. And so he also, though, saw how the gospel spoke into that situation. And so he wrote the book for the benefit of, of people who go through that sort of, of suffering. But, but I would suggest that this is a disordered psychological response that is, that is not necessarily sinful. I don't think that that persistent anxiety is what Jesus is talking about today. The third type of anxiety is anxiety that's a natural consequence of sin. So Joe Carter gives an example. I really can't improve on it. Joe Carter says, look, if you have someone who uses drugs, they may develop an anxiety disorder, right? Or If you have someone who cheats on their spouse, they may become anxious that their spouse is going to find out. They're walking around all day long wondering if they're going to get caught, what's going to happen, right? Someone who 
who gambles may be anxious about how they're going to pay the bills. They put all the money on the horse, right? And they lost, and now they're anxious. Um, this is anxiety that grows out of sinful decisions that we made. That's another kind of anxiety. But the fourth kind of anxiety is, is what I su- would suggest, this is what Jesus is talking about today, and that anxiety is a sinful response to God's providential care. We receive something good from God, and he sets a consistent pattern of being kind and being gracious and caring for us, and we respond by thinking he won't keep doing that, right? So that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's the kind of anxiety that happens when we simply don't trust God, when we actually should be trusting him. It's a sinful response to God's providential care. Right? Intellectually, we know God is in, is in charge, but we persist in internalizing our own worries about life. We, we chew on the things that could happen and might happen. We, we think it over, and, and in a sense, we try to control the world, and we try to control the future with our non-existent mind powers. And we think if only we keep thinking hard about the future, we're going to grab hold of it, and we're going to control it, and it's going to be great. So as I, was, as I was working through this, I thought, well, uh, it's really important for us to, to grasp just how relevant this is. And um, boy, I keep making references to the Gospel Coalition today. I didn't get any money from them. They didn't pay me or anything like that. But um, Colin Hansen wrote a book recently called Gospel Bound. And, and as I was reading the opening chapter, I thought he's talking about the moment we live in. And so I'm just going to read from Colin. He sets the stage better than me. He says, America seems to be in the midst of a full-blown panic attack. The New Republic observed in 2019. Maybe you've noticed. Symptoms started in the late 1990s. High school students began having trouble sleeping and thinking. College students were more likely to feel overwhelmed. And adults scored higher on depression studies. Between 1999 and 2017, Suicide rates increased 33%. I caught a glimpse of this anxiety spread when I asked a longtime friend about his ministry to young adults. What's changed with young people over the last 20 years, I asked him. Remember how hard it was for our classmates, he asked. He meant the pressure to perform well, the anxiety of landing a prestigious job, the, the, the press of grades and graduate school applications. Well, that's everywhere now. He didn't mean that the average American is fretting about graduate school, but that over time, the tight vibration of anxiety had intensified and spread. It's no longer just the Ivy Leaguers who are living under immense pressure. Everyone seems to be feeling it. When polling company Gallup asked Americans in 2018 whether they'd felt stress during much of the day before, 55% said yes, up from 44% in 2008 when the country was at the bottom of the Great Recession. 45% said they felt worry a lot, up from 34% in 2008. Then came 2020. By mid-March, COVID-19 had shut down and stressed out most of the country. People worried about getting sick, about going to work. What if they exposed themselves or their families to the disease? About not going to work? How could they pay the bills? They worried that the nation's healthcare system would be overrun, that their local hospitals would run out of ventilators, that doctors wouldn't have enough personal protective equipment. 
At the same time, they worried about their savings accounts, about local businesses closing, about the economy sliding into recession. By the end of March, 45% of Americans said stress from worrying about the disease was negatively affecting their mental health. In April, a government emergency hotline for emotional distress heard from 20,000 people compared with 1,700 the year before. An online therapy company said the number of clients jumped 65% from February to April. Then, just as the states were beginning to relax their shelter-in-place restrictions, a white police officer in Minneapolis spent around eight minutes kneeling on the neck of African-American George Floyd. Floyd's death was caught on camera, and the video was circulated widely online. Anxiety levels among African-Americans and Asian-Americans spiked. Protesters marched in nearly every American city, and some marchers broke into looting and rioting. Social media exploded with debates over law enforcement and Confederate statues. And that was before COVID cases spiked again, before many schools opted for e-learning, before the presidential election had even kicked off in earnest. No wonder we're anxious. End quote. You won't get those big ones from me too often. Do I really need to make the case that we live in an anxious age? You feel it in the air? Uh, I might suggest you really feel it if you watch very much news on television or if you spend much time on social media. Statistically speaking, you are far more likely to be an anxious person if you do just those two things. Watch TV news and spend time on social media. Um, I will not say we live in the most anxious moment of all time, but we certainly live in a moment where the need, where we have a need for Jesus to speak words of peace to our hearts. That need is greater than I think most of us can ever remember. In verse 25, Jesus is setting the stage about which kind of anxiety he's talking about here. He isn't saying not to be concerned if something troubling is happening and you need to act. He isn't telling you that if you see someone in trouble that your blood shouldn't start pumping and you shouldn't jump into action to save, save the person. Sorry, Jesus says, I shouldn't worry. Um, he says specifically, do not be anxious about what? He says, your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, and about your body, what you'll put on. He is speaking to you, America, right? He is specifically speaking to you, American follower of Jesus, right? Jesus is talking about the sort of everyday needs that all people have here. He's not saying that there aren't times when our juices should be flowing, right? When, we, when, we, when our senses should be on high alert, where, where it's called for that we should be looking around with paranoia. He's not saying that should never happen. Sometimes there are life situations that call for that. Jesus is talking about the sort of things that if you were anxious about them, you would be anxious all the time. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. We, we always do those things. If we worry about those things, we will be anxious all the time. Uh, think about just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was teaching us to pray. He was telling us what we need. And he said that we are supposed to pray Give us this day our daily bread. Now what is Jesus doing? Here we are only a few verses after he told us to pray for our daily bread. And what's he doing? He's telling us, now that you prayed that way, make sure that you don't live like God won't answer that prayer. 
Believe that you will receive your daily bread, your daily needs, and that he's going to do that for you. Um, I was talking to someone about this upcoming sermon, and uh, I think I was enthusiastic about it. And their response was, when it comes to anxiety, it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done, you know. Um, It's easier to say, do not be anxious, than it actually is to not be anxious. Um, I, I am sure Jesus knew this. I'm sure he knew this because look what he does this morning. He piles on the arguments why you shouldn't sinfully respond to God's providential care of you. He piles on the arguments because he knows you have a little tiny lawyer inside of you that says, yes, but, but, but what about this? But what about this? And, and, and Jesus is saying, don't distrust him. Rest in him. Trust that he will handle things better than you, all the things that you're worried about. And he gives four arguments here for why we should never be anxious um, and why we should stop worrying. He, he says we should stop worrying immediately. Why? Christians of all people should be the freest, the most relaxed, the least fearful people on the planet. Why? Because of these four things. Now, there are other reasons not to be anxious. You could just fill the, the sermon with, make it a 20-point sermon, and you'd have a lot of arguments. But again, like we usually do here, we're going to stay just in the text here. I want to follow Jesus' argument. And so look, here are the four things Jesus gives us in our text today why we should not be anxious, ever. First, he says, you are valuable. Therefore, do not be anxious. Second, he says, you are not in control, therefore don't be anxious. Third, he says, you can trust him, therefore don't be anxious. And then finally, he says, you are redeemed, therefore do not be anxious. Jesus loves us so much that he cares how we feel, he cares how we live, he cares how we carry ourselves. He is not in the business of increasing our care and increasing our worry and increasing our anxieties. He says in another place, what does he do? He comes to lift our burdens and to give us a newer, lighter one in its place. And so let's go to God's word. Let's hear what Jesus says specifically. You don't need my wisdom. You need Jesus' wisdom. So let's listen to what he says. Um, To begin with, Jesus says, do not be anxious because you are valuable. Uh, Right before he makes this point, He says that life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. He doesn't want us to be obsessed with our physical needs. A difficult message for us as Americans to swallow, right? What would we think about if we didn't think about food and clothes? Um, But but then he says this. he He says, if you just can't help obsessing over your physical needs, you should be confident and rest in the thought that God will care for you because of your value. All right, he says... He says this in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. I love how Jesus does this. He says, he says look up. Uh, he says, look, it's right there. Right? You are surrounded on every side by this present living testimony that there is life out there. All you have to do is lift up your eyes. Just lift up your eyes and you can see there are creatures out there and they're living God is, is making sure that, that his testimony of provision keeps going all the time. He says, look at the birds of the air. He wants you to notice something about the birds. What does he want us to notice about them? He says, notice how they neither sow nor reap, 
nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He is saying, the sky above testifies to you not only that God is there, but that he is a God who takes care of his little creatures. He says, he says, look, there they are. You just go outside and lift up your eyes. They're flying around. How are they doing that? They just see food and they pick it up, right? They don't control their world at all. The birds do not control the world except eating from moment to moment. That's what they do. They find something to eat. They put it in their mouth. They keep going. Uh, if you asked a bird, how will you eat six months from now? Well, they would just chirp at you, right? But if they were going to give you a thoughtful answer, they would not give you a detailed five-point plan. Their honest answer would be, the creator keeps feeding me. I just keep eating. There's just what I need is there. And, and Jesus looks and he says, he says that. He says that right there. That is you. That's what you are like. He says the creator will keep feeding you. He'll keep taking care of you so that you don't have to be anxious about that part of your life. He says, don't be anxious. Why? Because, here's the argument, are you not of more value than they? Here's the reason why you're more valuable than a bird, and he does it for the birds. Right? The answer is, of course you're of more value than they. You are, you're made in the creator's image. You bear the imprint of the maker. You are valuable, not because of what you produce or what you do, but simply because he made you to walk this earth as one of his representatives. The birds were not made like that. The birds are not image bearers of God. They are just little meat and bone eating machines and feathers. That's, their, that's what they are. Uh, they don't have souls. They aren't eternal. They weren't made for anything except to fly around and eat things and testify to all of us that the creator can be trusted. Are you willing to take that lesson to heart? Inside right now, you probably have something going on going, my life's more complicated than a bird's. And Jesus knows that. That's why he makes the argument the way that he does. Right? I would just say this. Ask God to remind you the next time you're filled with dread or fear or worry. God, remind me that I am valuable to you. Remind me that you care more about me than you do about any other kind of creature on the face of the earth. He won't abandon me. Right? Even, if, even if it feels like everyone else has forgotten me, he hasn't. Why? Because I'm made in his image. I'm made in his image. What an incredible antidote to anxiety. Just studying, use a big word here, anthropology. Knowing one little thing about human nature is meant to be part of why we are not filled with fear and dread and anxiety about our lives. Second, Jesus' second argument against anxiety is that you are not in control. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a very comforting very comforting reason, but let's look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? Um, none of you have mind powers that if you just worried a little more, things would start to tip in your direction, right? You 
Now, I'm telling you this and I, and because I know that none of you think that's completely ridiculous. You know in your hearts that you oftentimes believe it and you try it. I try it all the time. I try the worry thing, and uh, I'm always surprised that it doesn't work. You, you, you can't control your life. You're not in control, Jesus says. But depending on how you try to get through life, this may come as good news and it may come as, as bad news. There's a lot in our lives that we can control, or at least that we persuade ourselves that we can control. There's a lot more that we try to control. If I had to really narrow down where our anxieties come from, I, I might suggest that it comes from reaching for something that isn't ours to have and then being frustrated that we're not able to reach it. And that thing that we keep reaching for is control. The core of our anxiety is that persistent human desire for control. We want to be in control. We want power. We yearn for it. We're chasing it. We're obsessed with it. You can see that desire for control come out in a few ways. Let me mention a few. One of them is that persistent human desire to accumulate knowledge. We want knowledge. We want information. That's actually a form of control. Think about this. We are the most informed people on the planet in all of human history. We're not the wisest, but we're the most informed. Um, we can know what's happening in the Ukraine seconds after it happens if someone is sharing a video on Twitter. We can know things nearly instantaneously with the moment in which it happens, no matter where we are, and yet our knowledge seems to be more of a curse than a blessing and yet many of us still can't look away, even though we know the information we are gaining is making us miserable. It's almost like the more knowledge we have, the less control we feel, and the more anxious we feel. But strangely enough, we also think that if we knew more, then we could control the world more. We're, we're fools. We, we keep doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. And then the less control we feel, the more anxious we feel. And so instead of learning the lesson, we just double down and we think, no, the problem is I still don't have enough knowledge. If I just had more knowledge and more information, uh, then everything would be fine, but I don't have enough knowledge yet. So I'm just going to keep watching and keep looking and keep reading and keep listening until I finally feel like I've grasped everything that's going on. We're so foolish. We keep beating our heads against the door and wondering why it won't open. When will we learn the lesson of Ecclesiastes 1.8? He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Another way we demonstrate our desire for control is the way that we chase after money and affluence and comfort. And yet, where has that gotten us? I've said this before. No one argued with me the last time, so I'm going to say it again. America is the richest, most powerful nation on the face of the planet but we are most certainly not the happiest people on the face of the planet. And we are flooded with anxious feelings and fears. The richest among us seem to be the most perpetually anxious. If we made a list of wealthy celebrities who took their own lives or overdosed on drugs, the list would be long indeed. See, the control that seems to come with money doesn't leave people satisfied or restful. And, you know, this is something that Walker Percy pointed out a very long time ago. We are more than organisms. We are not simply organisms, right? Because if we were just organisms, then you could just give a simple input of more money and then produced out the other side would be an equal sign and a smiley face. If that's how human beings worked, 
more money, more food, more affluence, more everything, more power, would equal happiness, you would think. And yet it seems the richest society on earth is not healed of its anxieties by having more things or more resources or more control. Control is never enough. In fact, it is an illusion. And our pursuit of it leaves us more frustrated than ever. We try knowledge. We try money. We are nothing if not a nation of triers. We were built from trying, right? We try on our own to fight off anxiety too. Even when we see the encroaching anxiety that comes from pursuing all of those things, we see its failure, then we say, well, I can at least control my own feelings about how I feel. <laughs> and, and, and we try to do that by gaining control of the world around us, right? It's hitting your head against the door again. And the kind of anxiety that fills our age and that we are teaching to our children is exactly the kind of fear that Jesus is addressing today. You can't control your life, Jesus says. You, you can't. When you chase control, you are chasing a phantom that can never be caught. You're, you're chasing the wind. You're chasing a breath. You can't catch it, but you can become more anxious. Jesus is saying that. He's saying you can do that. If you persuade yourself that you can extend your lifespan by worrying more, then you can definitely become more anxious, he says. This leads to the third part of the message of Jesus, which is that you're not in control, but God is in control. So you go to verse 30, and Jesus gives us his third argument why we should not be anxious. No, you are not in control, but God is, and you can trust him. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So notice how Jesus, Jesus points not just to the fact that God clothes the grass, he points to the quality of how he clothes the grass, right? He doesn't just say, if God clothes the grass of the field, he, he puts another word in there, the word so. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, right? He, he clothes the grass like this. He, he does it well. Look how beautiful the grass is. If you live in Oregon, the grass is beautiful. If you live in Arizona, maybe not so much. Um, I used to live in Arizona, and I missed the grass. Um, and uh, I lived in Mississippi. They have great grass. Here, great grass. Um, what is he doing now? He's pointing to the quality of God's control. He's not just pointing to the, the fact of God's control. He's talking about his skill, right? The, the very thing you don't do and can't do and you want to do, God actually does it, and he does it with skill and wisdom and care. Jesus is rebuking us here. We want control. Why do we want control? Because we think we do a great job. On the job application for God of the universe, each and every one of us puts in the why did you apply for this job line, we write, because I think I would be great. <laughs> All of us think that. I would be a great God. We would never say it, right? Because we know it's bad theology, but we believe it. We want it because we think we would do a great job. We think the world would go better, we think if we were in control, the world would be smoother. We would be happier. 
inflation wouldn't be a thing. We would fix that, right? The, the things in our lives would start to turn around for us if we were in control. And to our shame deep down, we would, we think we would be a better God than God. We secretly think he doesn't have our best in mind. That's the, that's the lie that Satan goes to Adam and Eve with in the garden, right? He's talking to Adam and Eve and he's like, he's like you two should not listen to God because he's withholding something good from you. He's, he's withholding something that, that he knows you really want. And if you had it, then you would be, you would be happier than you are right now. And so he, he, he convinces them that he's withholding from them. They believe it. And what do they do? They reach out and try to take control of their own lives. And in the process, here's our world today. We are stupid enough as people that we think that if we were in control, we would be wiser, better, more skillful with that control. We think we would be more wise and good than God. We wouldn't say it, but we do believe it. We need to hear Jesus tell us that God is a better creator than us. We are not good. We are not wise. We are not all-knowing. We need to tell ourselves the truth. Even if I could control everything that I want, and I could control everything in my life, I would become a tyrant, right? And, and not only that, we'd be foolish tyrants. We'd be foolish tyrants. We would get what we want, and we would wreck the world in the process. Or, or we'd make it good for us, and we wouldn't care what happens to anybody else. See, we don't really know what's best, and we don't really know what we need most. We would be terrible gods. The only person who can really be trusted with absolute control is someone who knows absolutely everything that has ever happened or ever will happen, and someone who is absolutely good. And if he isn't good, then that control will lead to a monstrous outcome. And if he isn't wise and all-knowing, then, then he might have good intentions, but in his good intentions, he would ruin everything through ineptitude. We can't be trusted with control, and you don't know one mortal human being who could be trusted with control. Jesus says, look how, look how he clothes the grass. If he does this small thing with such skill, imagine how he can clothe more important things like you. Trust him, says Jesus. You can trust God. Rest in him. Take a deep breath and let him be the creator. Stop trying to take his place. Jesus is telling us that this morning. Finally, <coughs> Jesus gives one more reason not to be anxious. He says, don't be anxious because you are redeemed. So you go to verse 33, and Jesus hits on the final matter. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, the reason you shouldn't be anxious is this. The most important thing in all of your life is taken care of. What is that? It's there in the last sentence. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, right? He's saying to us, you have the kingdom. You are part of the kingdom. In Christ Jesus, you are redeemed. What else could you possibly fear that presents a real and actual threat if you are a redeemed person? 
Right? He's circling around what matters here at the end, right? Why shouldn't you be anxious? Because he says, if you were lining up the usual suspects for the things in your life that matter most, right? Do a lineup. What are the things that are most important to me? Put them all in a lineup. You can see them all right there. You can eyeball every one of those things. Look what he's done. He's already worked through all the usual suspects. He's eliminated food as an option. No, that is not the most important thing. He's eliminated clothes as the most important thing. He says, no, that's not what life is about. Those are the things unbelievers pursue, Jesus says. Those are the things that unredeemed people care about. What's left to live for if you're not living for food or clothes or money or prestige or control or knowledge? What's left? He says, here's what's worth living for, the kingdom of God. Seek that. Seek, seek this. This is, what life is, this is a, what life is about. This is what life consists of. This comes back to what Jesus said at the beginning. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Right? What's the lesson here? He says, you're a Christian. You don't seek like an unbeliever. You don't seek like a Gentile. You don't live obsessed with the sort of things that stoke anxieties and feed the myth of control. These won't fill you. They won't give you what you want. They are a lie. The lesson that Jesus has for us today is this. Do not be anxious because in Christ you have redemption. You have forgiveness of sins. In Christ, you're no longer a Gentile. You don't You don't chase what those Gentiles chase after. You don't pursue what they pursue. You seek the kingdom. You seek his righteousness. You seek him. You live for everything that can't be lost. So even if if your worst fears came true and your whole world crumbled around you, do not be anxious because in Christ, God is your father and he holds you in his hand. Let's pray together. Lord God, it may be that many in this church today are being led around by a cruel master, by anxiety, fear, and worry about the future. It may be that they have seen the testimony that you're trustworthy and good and and sovereign, and yet they still hesitate to trust you. Lord, send your Holy Spirit. 